0: Hey, I have a question for you. What? Oh, by the way, great lecture today.
1: Oh, thank you. I
0: mean, this week. Oh, The lecture was today. I guess it's on YouTube. It's kind of like today and every
1: day. It's everlasting. It's everlasting. (laughs) Will
0: anything that's on YouTube, unless it's intentionally deleted, or even if it is, will it ever go away? Or will it just exist for eternity, like on the cloud?
1: I feel like there's a horror movie about that waiting to be made somewhere, somewhere.
0: Well, your lecture on the sacraments taught me things. I'd forgotten about some of the sacraments, first of all. Second of all, (laughs) I'm like... Charlemagne I feel like that's a name I hear from time to time just you know casually like Charlemagne this Charlemagne that (laughs) and I forget who Charlemagne was but actually I remembered and then through the reading in Mark Knowles turning points I was like oh yes Charlemagne that's a name that is a, a questionable name maybe because of who he was yes but not a bad name in terms of its spelling and sound. Oh yeah, no, it's actually kind think? of
1: beautiful. It reminds me, I always think of a lion because of the main part,
0: Charlemagne. Charlemagne, mm-hmm. it kind of sounds like champagne, <laughs> Charlemagne. The <laughs> yeah. question I want to ask you is this. You did such a great job laying out these Thanks. these seven sacraments. Um, and uh, I, I just wondered in your own life, and I'm not even presuming that you've experienced all of them or that you even come from a church tradition that emphasizes them in the same way. right? Because we don't all come from traditions that emphasize these things in the same way. But a lot of these, as you pointed out, even have parallels in church traditions that don't celebrate them in the traditional way. So my question for you is which one of these has been the most important in your own life?
1: Wow. That's such a big question. And Mm -hmm. you're right. I don't come from a tradition that um, teaches about these practices, Mm -hmm. like in terms of sacraments, Um, we use the term ordinance, which that's a whole other conversation. We'll get to that later in the semester, how that, how that came to be. But I have experienced many of these, um, these practices, Mm -hmm. certainly baptism and communion. Mm -hmm. Um, but I have to say that marriage thinking about marriage in terms of its sacramental quality has meant a lot to me. And by that, I mean, um, I think anybody who is a Christian and has been married for any period of time in Mm -hmm. the 21st century Mm -hmm. will readily admit that marriage is a great way to grow in terms of like holiness, mm-hmm. like sanctity. It's <laughs> sanctifying because, it you know, being in a long relationship with someone it's really shows you, you know, your own faults. And then it also, you know, it's it's hard to be in a relationship with someone who has faults of their own. I've been married for a long time. I know you have too. I think um, one of the the biggest blessings for me in terms of being in a long marriage has been, to think about the grace that my spouse, the the truly godly grace that my spouse has extended to me and that I hope I've extended um, to him over the years and just how rare that actually is and 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 really how beautiful it is. Now, you, let me flip that question back to you. Yeah. What What's the sacrament that has meant well, the most to you? Well,
0: you know, if I'm really to think about it, like really carefully, marriage is what I would pick. Mm-hmm. However, I'll pick a different one yeah, and do. I'll say... I'll say um, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, mm. and I say it because no matter what kind of church I've been a part of, and I've I've I definitely grew up in, in what we might call a low church tradition that treated the Lord's Supper not with a lot of extreme ceremony. Maybe once a month, you kind of take a little cracker and some grape juice, yeah. and someone's like, "Hey, pass around a thing with like these tiny thing. little cups." Now I go to a church where we do this every week, and it's like a big deal, mm. and like you come to the front to do it. Yeah. And I gotta say, e- e- even in the low church environments where it yeah. was not a big deal, and in the environment I'm in now, in this season of my life, I just, gosh, like, and I don't, I do not, as you know, I think Dr. Payne and I are both are both um, brother and sister in this. We, I, I do not cry often. I don't choke up with tears <laughs> very often. We're hard. hard We're just people. hard-hearted people. <laughs> you can't make us cry. It'd be really tough, right? And, um, but I, I can, I, the one place and time that something can just get to me is actually at that moment Mm. of Lord's Supper. Like I can actually go there. Like something happens to me, even to the point where, you know, being raised and sort of weaned in a tradition where, you know, and I'm uh, that, that, that the, the cup and the bread is not literally the Lord's body and so on in the way that some other church traditions would see it that way and take it much more seriously. It's like, I almost have to admit like something very serious is happening there, you know? Like it's not its not just like, hey, I'm doing this little thing as a symbol, kind of right. like the way that we, you know, uh, I, I don't know, just all the symbols that we have in our life that mean nothing. It's more than a symbol to me. And the fact that, that I do it every week is, is a big deal.
1: Well, I think, you know, I appreciate you mentioning that because in the um, in this era that we're in right now, in the Middle Ages or the medieval period, um, the Eucharist was the pinnacle of the worship service. Right. And so right. one thing that students, you know, if you go to just a non-denominational, generally Protestant American church, mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily assume that because the sermon is definitely the the high point of or maybe the worship music or something like that um but as time went on in the middle ages there were many parts of of the um holy roman empire that students are reading about this week wherein people couldn't actually even understand the the words that the the um involved in worship service cause it right. was done in Latin right. and they're it, not in their native language. So they, they didn't even necessarily know all the things that were going on. You wouldn't want to sit through a sermon that's super long in a language you couldn't understand. Right. Um, but they can understand that, that ritual. So, um, I appreciate totally. you bringing that up. It's still very valuable today. Well,
0: I think just a practical, like for students out there casting out in the world for the first time, you're looking for a church. There's so many good churches. So I, do, many. I have, I have, I have, only good things to say about literally every Christian tradition in its own way. So this isn't a comment about which kind of church.
1: Yeah. There are highs and lows in every highs
0: and lows. I would say this though, find a church where like God is the center of what's
1: happening. (laughs) Yeah. Try that. Try that. That's true. Whether
0: that's, whether that culminates in the Eucharist, but I I have been to churches where God was not the center of what was happening. It, it, it putatively seemed to be the center, right? but it actually wasn't. It, It was about a person or about some style or about something like that. And I think that that's not bad advice. Like, God is the gift. God is the center. Like
1: Yeah, that's that's the challenge I think for all of us, all Christians at all points in time mm-hmm. is not making. In fact, I don't know, this is making me think of the passage where Paul is talking about people say I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Yes. Like you should only pay attention when people are following Jesus. That's kind of central. So right. no matter what form the church takes over time, you want to make sure that you've got that. Well, going. it seems
0: crazy for Christians to have to to have to affirm, as we literally have to do all the time in ourselves, that Jesus is the center of faith. Mm-hmm. It's like how could you forget that? But actually, you totally can.
1: Well, you you <laughs> as a biblical scholar, I you know more than most the The challenge of idolatry forever in oh, in idolatry. the history of Israel, right? Idolatry is I, the
0: worst; is the biggest problem.
1: I have a question for you, a Bible scholar. Yeah. Um. So I'm. I just briefly mentioned the fact that in the Middle Ages, most people couldn't understand the language that they were worshiping in. Right. But then I. I didn't uh, mention, although I, I think I talked a little bit about it in the um, lecture, mm-hmm. the idea that most people couldn't read. Right. Um. And here you are. You're a Bible scholar. Um. They did. Uh, th- there were places, mostly in the monastic orders, where they preserved and carried the scriptures forward right. through time. What, is it, what would it look like to study the Bible oh, in man. this this era?
0: Oh, this is so fascinating. So, yeah, and as you said in the lecture, really appropriately, we're talking about a 1,000 year period, basically. Yeah, it's so long. Nearly so. or Yeah, basically 500 to 1500, if we want to think of the Middle Ages right. as being that. So, really long time, lots going on. However, here's here, there are two things I think I could bring up. One is like a, an, interp- an interpretive structure that the medieval period inherited from the early church mm. that I think is really important to think about. We won't be able to talk about it in detail, but I'll bring it up. And then the other thing is like a series of things that kind of like started to happen during the medieval period that I think would be recognizable to us and in some ways set the stage for the modern period, which mm. follows. Mm. So first, the medieval period inherited from the early church, from the church fathers, people like Augustine and Origen and others, this idea that scripture could have what's often referred to as a fourfold
1: meaning, Mm. the
0: fourfold meaning of scripture. So the idea is that when you were to interpret the Bible, you would kind of run it through like a process or a machine of these four layers, kind of like a layer cake of meaning. Yes. Um, And those layers were in order, number one, the so-called literal sense, what the text says directly or plainly could mean like the narrative or even like historically. Mm -hmm. Number two, the allegorical sense. Each element has a symbolic meaning that teaches church doctrine, similar to typology, something we talked about a lot last semester. Like the idea, like maybe the text is talking about a temple, but maybe that temple actually refers in our time to the church. The believer
1: of the church or something. Exactly. So like it's
0: it's symbolic. So there's a literal sense. What just what is the character doing? No, no, no symbolism. Just like what, what happened? Allegorical though, the spiritual, what does it mean? Like on a higher level, Mm -hmm. number three, the moral application level which would be like the moral application to an individual leader, uh, reader, kind of like what, what a church leader or a Bible study leader would do in a Bible study today. Like, right. well, how do you apply this to your own life? And then the so-called anagogic sense. Mm. This one always, I find a little bit more confusing. It comes from a term that means to lift up or a spiritual uplift, meaning drawing out the implicit allusions or secret knowledge or knowledge about Jesus coming at the end of time, mm-hmm. something like that. So what you could do is take a text say like any text, like Genesis chapter one, and you could read it through all of these levels.
1: A lot of the really complex scholarship and mm-hmm. really thoughtful meditations on the scripture come to us from that era. Right. Um, so this week, the students are going to be experiencing someone who is a real, I, the, the only word that I can think of um, to describe this person is a wonder. They're going to be reading um, and experiencing the work of Hildegard von Bingen or Hildegard of Bingen. She's from, um, uh, Germany. And, um, they're going to be uh, listening to some of her musical work and they're going to be uh, meditating on some of her written work. Um, She was a German Benedictine abbess. So that meant that she was one of the people who followed the ancient Benedictine rule. If you remember students, we talked about that um, earlier. And um, during the period known as Christendom, monasteries and convents became centers for intellectual life. And monastic leaders like Hildegard were... Basically, some of them were just multi-talented geniuses. I would say Renaissance person, but that comes from a different era. That's
0: later. Yeah, um, sort so of overlaps with the late. Medieval we're gonna talk period, with
1: but. yeah, way way after her life, but we're gonna talk um, uh, about that a little bit later. But Hildegard was a theologian for sure, and she was a really important leader in the church. But she was also a philosopher and a scientist. She founded what most people uh, think of it as the beginning of natural history um, in Germany. She was a mystic. She was a visionary. She she was just like an absolutely brilliant music composer, musical composer, writer, and artist. You're going to listen to one of her compositions this week um, that is a morality play that basically talks about, I'm so glad you brought up the idea of allegorical readings of the scripture because mm. it's this grand allegorical vision of um, the struggles of the Christian life mm. um, that, that would have been produced by some of the top musicians of her era. Mm. So um, I think that like, it's. I, I'm really excited that we're going to be talking and thinking about one of the luminaries of that oh, era. Yeah. And um, she was a really sophisticated, kind of a genius person. Oh,
0: totally. You know what my favorite Hildegard fact is, by what? the way? I'm pretty sure this is true. I've read this in a, in a formal publication. Yeah. Hildegard, she was actually also a preacher, like a public preacher. Yes, and she yes. traveled. Unusual. And actually, women in this setting were not allowed really to preach like that. And she just kept doing it anyway, and they couldn't stop her. Because she was yeah. too popular,
1: you know. And so she just kept doing it. That's that's one <laughs> of the really interesting things about her. I mean, she also joined, like, she wanted to join a monastery, not a convent, and right. there was a whole series of conflicts around that. But one of the things for that, men as opposed to women, yeah, so. one of the things that people, um, like, scholars of this period and of of people who are th- uh, called mystics, um, will argue is that, like, if you have these kind of charismatic experiences, right. A lot of times, like the charismatic experience, this idea that you're having a direct spiritual experience with God Mm -hmm. um, that is outside of the traditional authority structures actually allows you to kind of get around some of the powers that be. So like if you're somebody who people in her, her era believed that she was having like... This divine experience, don't you want to hear about it? Regardless of what people say about public preaching and women, right? You know, people wanted to hear, it. and if enough people want to hear you, then like the powers that be can't really tell you no. <laughs> well, and this is a
0: dynamic that you can see. I mean, any of you who are, who are enmeshed in a church setting, you can see the conflict between traditional structures of authority and people who have those charismatic kind of yeah, gifts. Classic. You can just go straight around it. And you see this in businesses. You see this in a university. You'll see mm-hmm. this in your working life. Like oh,
1: right. those yeah. two
0: roles, like in conflict. Max Weber, near and dear to your heart, Dr. Oh, Payne,
1: you I know, mean. he's one of my favorites. Um, Okay, so can we read a little bit of Hildegard?
0: Oh, yeah, totally. We're reading
1: book two, Vision Six. Students, you have a link to this. Um, on foxtail, and let's just read this this little section. Um, in, in it, she talks a little bit about the sacrament, so you can get a, get an idea mm-hmm. of what some of the most prominent um, mm-hmm. theologians of. At theologians and multi-talented polymaths <laughs> yeah. of this era were thinking about God and how they were thinking about the scripture, et cetera, et cetera. And this so. is
0: called the Skivius. Is that how you mm-hmm. pronounce that?
1: Oh, yes. Yes.
0: Which is a kind of a, sh- a Latin shorthand for know th- for a Latin <laughs> phrase that means know the ways of the Lord.
1: Yes. And it's quite lengthy. So we're just reading a little section. Just
0: read a little part. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And Sorry. Is-
1: students, it should say a poetry of science at the top of your, the the, the yes. link that you get. So yep. FYI. Okay, cool yeah book two, vision six. Um, the three orders in the church. You want to go sentence by sentence? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I'll start. And after these things, I saw the Son of God hanging on the cross and the aforementioned image of a woman coming forth like a bright radiance from the ancient council.
0: But divine power she was up, uh, but divine power she was led to him and raised herself upward so that she was sprinkled by the blood from his side. And thus, by the will of the heavenly Father, she was joined with him in happy betrothal and nobly dowered with his body and blood.
1: And I heard the voice from heaven saying to him, may she, O son, be your bride for the restoration of my people. May she be a mother to them, regenerating souls through the salvation of the spirit and water.
0: And as that image grew in strength, I saw an altar, which she frequently approached. And there each time looked devotedly at her dowry and modestly showed it to the heavenly father and his angels.
1: Hence, when a priest clad in sacred vestments approached that altar to celebrate the divine mysteries, I saw that a great calm light was brought to it from heaven by angels and shone around the altar until the sacred rite was ended and the priest had withdrawn from
0: it. And when the gospel of peace had been recited and the offering to be consecrated had been placed upon the altar and the priest sang the praise of almighty God, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of hosts, which began the mysteries of the sacred rites. When this happened, heaven was suddenly opened and a fiery and inestimable brilliance descended over that offering and irradiated it completely with light as the sun illumines anything its rays shine through.
1: And thus illuminating it, the brilliance bore it on high into the secret places of heaven and then replaced it on the altar as a person draws in a breath and lets it out again. And thus the offering was made true flesh, and true blood, although in human sight, it looked like bread and wine.
0: And while I looked at these things, suddenly there appeared before my eyes as if in a mirror the symbols of the nativity, passion, and burial, resurrection and ascension of our Savior, God's only begotten, as they had happened to the Son of God while he was on earth.
1: But when the priest sang the song of the innocent lamb, O Lamb of God, who takest away the sins of the world, and prepared to take the holy communion himself the fiery brilliance withdrew into heaven and it closed or and as it closed i heard the voice from thence saying eat and drink the body and blood of my son to wipe out eve's transgression so that you may be restored to the noble inheritance
0: and as other and as other people approached the priest to receive the sacrament i noticed five modes of being in them
1: for some were bright of body and fiery of soul and others seemed pale of body and shadowy of soul. Some were hairy of body and seemed dirty in soul because it was pervaded with human pollution. Others were surrounded in body by sharp thorns and leprous of soul, and others appeared bloody of body and foul as a decayed corpse in soul.
0: And all these received the same sacraments, and as they did, some were bathed in fiery brilliance, but the others were overshadowed by a dark cloud.
1: And when these mysteries finished, as the priest withdrew from the altar, the calm light from heaven, which as was said, had shone around the altar was drawn up again into the secret places of heaven. Woo. Wild, right?
0: That's pretty wild. That's wild.
1: What stood out to you first? Oh my
0: gosh. So I'm just trying to like, I'm just trying to make sense of like, what is she talking about? Like at first, my first first blush, tell me, yes. I mean, you know, yes. she. it's almost like she's having a vision. The word mystery comes up. I want to come back mm-hmm. to that word mystery. Mm-hmm. She's experiencing a vision essentially of a moment. You could say like a moment in church.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like an, a mundane
0: moment. Yeah. She's, she's having a vision of a moment in church when the priest is going to give like the Lord's supper. And she's like seeing this, like, uh, like expanded symbolic significance, like she's seeing like this wild drama of God and of the Virgin Mary mm-hmm. and of all this stuff happening. As so, in other words, what maybe in some church traditions, just like oh, take the cracker, eat it, yeah. repent of your sins really quick, drink this thing, and get out of here. She's seeing it as like this multi-tiered cosmic event. Event.
1: Yeah. I get, I get kind of like goosebumps when, when we were reading it, I was like, this is kind of exciting because she's like, so I grew up in a charismatic Pentecostal tradition where like this language is recognizable to me. So it's like, there's this thing that's happening in the world, Mm -hmm. but there's this other spiritual thing that's happening at the same time so you right. might just see people kind of like shuffling up to get communion the literal she says, the literal
0: reading yeah What's what, what happened she
1: said yeah you might read the room literally but then she is seeing like something has given her like I think she thinks that the God has given her the insight to mm-hmm. actually see mm-hmm. like the state of people's souls. Maybe when they're receiving communion. Well, that was that stuff about somebody being
0: like, and I don't think she's talking, yeah, she's talking symbolically. Like she's not talking about people who are physically hairy or leprous or whatever. She's talking about soul. She says
1: of soul, yeah. She's using these things
0: as symbols of what people's souls might be like, like dirty of soul. And there's a reality behind the reality which God sees and which she can see in the mystery, but which we might try to hide.
1: One thing that I thought was interesting was there's this, Long, ongoing question. Saint Augustine takes it up. Many people take it up. Where it's, and it's, it's this: you go to church mm-hmm. and you see people. Um, you see lots of different kinds of people at church. Some can spend their whole lives in church and they're the worst, right? Like there's just something about them that's just awful. They're contentious. They're mean. They're. Are you, are you talking about me? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm just saying, Don't like, you, you go way. to church and it's like there are some who just really, no, and then you you s- there are some who are just these like angelic beings right, you know like right. you you meet them there are some people who and i always think of the character of stephen mm. in the book of acts is like mm. their their face is like angelic you know right. regardless of what they look like because there's something a uh, goddish about them yeah and she seems to be kind of taking up that question which is like you know you all these people can be doing the same thing and there's a different result right like when she says that that um all these received the same sacraments and as they did, some were bathed in fiery brilliance. So like it works for some right. and others were overshadowed by a dark cloud. Maybe it's both, maybe it's working for both of them, but it just seems to produce a really different
0: result. I mean, do you get any sense from this? Like I, you know, say I'm a student and I'm reading this and I'm listening to this and I'm like, okay, I go to church. Sometimes I try to, and sometimes I take communion am I the kind of person who's receiving this like with a dirty soul? Like, is there a way like, Mm. is there something, is there some response I'm supposed to have to this? Like, how would I, how would I receive communion in a way that, or any of the sacraments for that matter, or, or participate in this world? I guess it's like, what is, is, is there, is there a, I don't want to make it just too practical because I think we yeah. could just revel in the mystery. But what if I was reading this and I was like, okay, this language is really difficult. She thinks she can see people who have dirty souls taking communion and others are great. <laughs> how, how? Like, What does that mean for me? Oh, boy. What do you think? Like, well, where, where would I don't you go know.
1: I mean, it, when I read it myself, my experience of it is I, I, I don't even... I, I don't know where you'd go with that one. Mm-hmm. Um, my the thing that that stands out to me is the idea that there's actually something happening. I mean, a lot of people um, go through you. You can you can go to a lot of church services and basically just go through whatever motions and not really think mm-hmm. of anything in particular, like a special happening. And so the thing that stands out to me about this is just the idea that like. I'm I'm imagining it students, if you've ever been to a Roman Catholic mass, um, you'll, you'll know, I mean, they're not exactly the same now as they were then, but just imagine, um, you'll know that like it, it's, it's incredible and really beautiful. And also like kind of every day, they literally do it every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so you could imagine how you just get, um, a little used to it, but she's sort of re re-energizing it with this vision. But in terms of like, you know, thinking about how do I maintain or, you know, how do I strive for like this fiery brilliance? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she doesn't really answer that question here in this passage, but I think one of the things that I find comforting, like in order for all of this stuff to work, the sacraments work together, mm-hmm. right? So um, the, the act of penance, I think, is an important component to that. Mm-hmm. Like you want to um, seek and receive forgiveness mm-hmm. before you, this moment.
0: Right. What about you? Like you wouldn't just approach it. Well, I mean just this, the the deep symbolic importance would suggest that, you know, no matter where I'm at to like take, to take that moment seriously, you know, because it's like if her vision is true, you know, like if what she's seeing is, is like relevant for us as like, you know, just based on like who she was and like what she wrote and what she saw, it would suggest that there are things happening like cosmically. Actually, this made me think Really, to be a Christian at all, you have to engage in a level of what you might call mysticism. Mm. Like, everyone does. Do you think that that's true, that all Christians have to engage in some level of mysticism? And, like, I guess I'm defining mysticism here very broadly as just, like, a belief that somehow there's this other world and you're participating in it, actually. And that you can—the things that you do, uh, like, I I don't know. Maybe I'm defining it too broadly, but— Well, it seems like if what she's saying is true, we're all participating in this like cosmic, almost like a battle of our souls. Like when we go forward and like participate in this.
1: Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. And maybe I can, I'll I'll respond in kind of Bible-y language, which is, you know, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and most, most Christians, like theology people, Bible-y people Mm -hmm. will tend to see that there's like a kingdom that is happening right now and a kingdom that is yet to come. And so if you think that that's going, if you think that's real, like that it's already here and also not yet here, then you kind of have to, you back yourself into believing that. And, you know, I mean, the Bible is full of, of stories that are like uh, of miraculous stories, wherein like the world doesn't operate the way that it normally does. Like physics right. are, are defied and right, like people right. are transported. <laughs> so it's kind of like, yeah, if you're going to sign on to this thing, I'm sort of a go big or go home person. Like, yeah, you know, you go,
0: bigger, if you're you gonna go sign home
1: onto it. Then you're like, you got to be prepared for that kind of stuff. Well, and
0: I think I could imagine a student's reaction to this. If you came from a background, of students like I did, or Dr. Payne for that matter, you're kind of like, you're doing the reading. You're thinking about the Holy, you know, the Holy Roman yeah. empire in Europe. And you're like, is this just like a Catholic thing? Like what right. is this exactly? All the sacraments. One just programming note, which is like, yeah, we're we're moving through the period in which basically there is essentially a single church in Europe like this. Yes. There's a yes. schism. Yes. There's a break. Yes. There's this stuff, but like, we want to understand also like where faith comes from in the story of faith in history. So even if Catholicism is not your tradition and a lot of this stuff seems very Catholicy to you, that's totally yeah. okay. Like you can hang in there and, and, you know, learn from this and think about it as, yeah. as I am as a non-Catholic right now.
1: Well, and even when you're, if you're a Catholic, um, student, and statistically, probably about 10% of you are. 10, 10 15 or 15%. We
0: know you're out there. Yeah.
1: Um, you can just feel like this one's for me. But uh, <laughs> but also, you know, the church has developed over time. It doesn't just stand still. So right. a lot of things that um, the ways that they worship and practice and stuff have, have developed as the years have gone by. But I hope, you know, I hope by reading one of the mystics, um, there's something that is striking to any reader Mm -hmm. that is, is just, um, you know, hopefully by reading Hildegard, you see this sort of imaginative, extraordinary art and Mm. theology and, you know, philosophy all at once. I hope that that, I think that there's something that's transcendent about that.
0: Oh, I, you know, let me pitch this to you. Maybe as we close, like, right. I think whether, no matter what church tradition you belong to, or, or, or even if you don't, even if you're not sure, like where you kind of fit into all this or you Mm -hmm. feel like you don't, I think for for Christians, at least in general, our search for meaning when we do poetry, when, when when Hildegard records a vision, when we do theology, when we read the Bible, when we do literal readings and translate languages and think about history, when we do all of this stuff, we are all fundamentally responding to mystery. Yes. We've been given this mystery and we're trying to like work it out. That's the whole problem. It's not all figured out for us. And we're doing this work and whether you're you're a Catholic or a so-called Protestant, coming later in our story. Yeah, yeah, okay? yeah. We'll get like, to you guys. We're we're responding. We're responding to mystery. We're responding to something that we do not fully understand and it's out of our control. And God gave it to us and in a way it's like, hey God, this is your fault. This is your responsibility. Well I'm, I'm trying to do my thing here.
1: One of my favorite I mean, Hildegard and many, many um, theologians in the Middle Ages spend a ton of time meditating on the doctrine of the Trinity, mm-hmm. which maybe seems to us to be self-evident but it's not in the scripture you know that the word trinity is not in the scriptures it's a doctrine that developed over time and that is one of the most mysterious things like how can god be three separate persons and one person right. and i think you know to me the this idea that we'll never we've never figured it out we will never totally figure it out is one of the reasons why we need that third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, like Mm. as, as a guide and as someone who, you know, a lot of words that are associated with the Holy Spirit have to do with illumination, light, you know, like to, to, um, light your way to guide your thoughts. So hopefully that's what you all are experiencing this week. Mm.
0: Illumination.
1: Illumination.